As you watch the screen, your heart begins to beat faster. There's a fluttering in the pit of your stomach. Your throat is dry. Your palms damp. Suddenly a chill runs down your spine. You clutch the person next to you. You tell yourself, it's only a movie. It's only a movie. But sooner or later, it's time to go home. Welcome to Filmstrip. I'm Brian. And I'm Lindsay. And tonight we're talking about the 1987 teenage comedy horror film, The Lost Boys, starring Corey Haim, Jason Petrick, Kiefer Sutherland, Jamie Gertz, Corey Feldman, Diana West, Edward Herman, Alex Winter, Jameson Newlander, and Bernard Hughes. Directed by Joel Schumacher and produced by Harvey Bernhard. It was released on July 31st, 1987 on a budget of $8.5 million and went on to gross $32 million at the box office, making it a critical success. Isn't that weird to think that $32 million is a critical success, especially in today's age? I, yeah. It would go on to spawn two sequels, a comic book series, and eventually a television show. So, Lindsay, why are we talking about The Lost Boys? Well is part of our Shocktober series. And I actually asked the question some time ago, have we ever done Lost Boys? And I believe it was Jay said, surprisingly, no, and decided we have to do it. It's one of my favorite fall slash Halloween horror films from the 80s and just in general for the genre. So really excited about doing this one. What's interesting here is that I've never seen The Lost Boys. This will be the first time that I've seen this movie, and which is odd because, I mean, I'm a kid of the 80s. You'd think I would have seen this by now, but this is my first go-round on The Lost Boys. Well, I'm happy to be a part of your first experience with this movie. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's funny, too, because I got this movie confused with a movie called, I think it was The Outsiders. So my wife is a teacher and teaches seventh grade English, and she would use the outsiders. When she started teaching, she used the outsiders one year as part of her curriculum. And so I thought, oh, no, we're going to use that book that my wife used for teaching. And Jay's like, why in the hell would she use the Lost Boys to teach? And I didn't get it. <laughs> so I went to her. I said, oh, we're going to do the Lost Boys for Shocktober. And she's like, oh, okay. I'm like, isn't that the book you teach? She goes, no. <laughs> Uh, oops. <laughs> so that's kind of weird. But uh, yeah, no. So I totally had no clue what this was even about. But yeah, here we are. We're going to do that. So before we get into the movie and talking about some of these characters and, and some of the events here, why don't you uh, go ahead and give us a plot summary? Great. So hopefully everyone listens has seen the movie. But if you haven't, uh, spoilers ahead. So the plot starts with Lucy, a recently divorced mother, moving her two sons, Michael and Sam, to Santa Clara to live with her father, who they affectionately call Grandpa. While exploring the boardwalk out on the town, older brother Michael becomes obsessed with this girl in the crowd, Star, 
And while he's chasing her down, his younger brother, Sam, played by Corey Haim, meets the Frog Brothers, Alan and Edgar, who is played by Corey Feldman. So this is a movie with the Coreys, ladies and gentlemen. (laughs) He meets them both at a comic book stand. The Frog Brothers give him a comic book about vampires to read. And uh, Corey Feldman's character, Edgar, states, you could save your life. Uh, Meanwhile, Michael finally catches up with Star and is quickly introduced to David, who is played by Kiefer Sutherland and his gang of troublemakers. David convinces Michael to come with them to their hangout and while there convinces him to drink a bottle of wine, which is actually blood. Michael wakes up the next morning and, and finds that the sunlight is bothering him and he has a sudden urge to attack Sam. And when he tries, he is thwarted by their dog. Sam notices Michael's reflection in the mirror after that and sees that it's fading and tells him that he is a vampire. When Michael goes back to the vampire hotel to get answers, he finds Star there and they get down and dirty. David and company return after they finish the deed and take Michael out with the hopes of getting him to feed, revealing their vampire looks to Michael and to the audience for the first time. However, Michael can't bring himself to actually feed on another human. And it's then revealed by Sam, probably thanks to the Frog Brother comics, that because Michael didn't feed and did not have his first kill, he is actually only half vampire. Sam then begins to plot with the Frog Brothers to figure out who the head vampire is so they can kill him, thereby rescuing his brother and any other half vampires that may exist. Initially, they believe that Max, their mom's love interest, is the head vampire because his dog attacked Lucy when she came to apologize to him for running out on their date. Everything they try, garlic, holy water, etc., doesn't seem to indicate that Max is the head vampire, though, and they apologize for ruining his mom's hot dinner date with him. Michael, wanting to save Star, leads Sam and the Frog Brothers to the secret lair so that they can kill the other vampires and vanquish the leader. But after killing one vampire, the rest wake up and chase them out of the hideout. So that evening, the Frog Brothers, Michael, Star, and tiny little vampire Laddie uh, and Sam plan their attack when David and crew show up at their home. Michael and David face off, and Michael is able to impale David, Unfortunately, neither he nor Star nor baby vampire Laddie return to normal. Uh, Those three are also half vampires, they find out. So Max and Lucy return home amidst this chaos to find everything that has ensued, and Max reveals himself as the lead vampire. While Max threatens to kill Sam if Lucy doesn't join him, Grandpa suddenly crashes through the side of the house and impales Max with a large stake. Michael, Starr, and Laddie return to their normal selves, and Grandpa declares, one thing about living in Santa Clara I never could stomach, all the damn vampires. All right, so there that you go. That was a mouthful, guys. That was a lot, but yep. uh, you know, it sums it up, I think, fairly well on what we see here. It's an interesting movie, I think. I really thought at parts of this movie where very cheesy, but I do have to give them credit. I thought that they did a very good job with the vampire look that they gave the guys. Yeah. I was very impressed. Normally, the vampire looks are pretty pretty bad, but this one, I would uh, give it a pretty good rating up there, almost with the Buffy the Vampire Slayer stuff. 
Yeah, it was a really creepy look. And up to that point, I remember watching it for the first time. I was thinking, are they even really vampires? Or are they just like jerks? You know, just like punk kids. And that big reveal was very almost shocking at that point because you know the movie's about vampires going into it but it's one of those things where I think at the beginning it kind of makes you question whether or not they really are vampires or if at the end of the movie it's going to be one of those like oh we're not actually really vampires we're just jerks that pretend we are so (laughs) that moment was very cool and frightening as uh, Michael you know get scared and rolls down the hill afterwards. Yeah. Uh, let's talk a little bit about uh, David and his crew. Obviously they run the place, right? They they can go wherever they want. They get in trouble everywhere they go. They're told not to be around. People seem to know who they are and what they are, which I think is rather interesting. And, you know, I really like that one of the vampires is Bill from uh, Bill and Ted. I like that. <laughs> yeah. That was pretty funny. He doesn't look good as a, 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 as a vampire or with really long hair, I must say. It does no. not fit him very well. But it was fun to see him in the movie. And Kiefer Sutherland plays a great role as David. And really, you get the sense that uh, he's a real ass in, in real life on this. So I, I think he did a great job with this character, playing the cocky, arrogant uh, leader. And uh, I think he did a great job. I do want to ask you, though, as we know in the plot summary, Max is the head vampire. When did you feel like that was the case? Like, did did you get the vibe that he was going to be the vampire early or was it kind of a surprise at the end? That is a great question. So I've seen this movie because I've seen this movie before I already knew. I kind of forgot, though, because it's been at least a year since I've seen it. And when they mentioned it right off the bat, I thought to myself, oh, that's right. Oh, he is the head vampire. When I first watched it, I don't think I ever believed that he was. I think, I mean, until it was exposed at the very end. So, and even, you know, now I forgot watching it recently (laughs) until they mentioned it again. But yeah, I think I, I was a non-believer that max was the head vampire until the end of the movie and his big okay. reveal when i first that's saw cool it. what about you so t- so i had a, a little suspicion on him that first interactive scene where they're in his shop and he's kind of watching the the guys come and then tells him that i told you not to come here thing i got a little inkling there but really my suspicion was on star almost the whole time that she was the lead vampire yeah. and that she was playing Michael and using David uh, this whole time. So that was my thought. So when they actually ended up being Max, I thought that was a pretty good move. So one of the reasons I didn't think it was Max is because he had a dog, not thinking of the hounds of hell, but because dogs notoriously don't like vampires and mm. will attack them. And so because he had a dog kind of guarding his store, I took that as he's using this guard dog against vampires not to protect him. So that's where I kind of was like, no, I couldn't beat Max. He's got a dog. (laughs) Yeah, no, I think they did a good job here in kind of setting it up with multiple people. Obviously, once they quote unquote cleared Max, everyone goes to David, right? 
as the lead vampire. Makes a lot of sense based on how he's portrayed in the movie. And then when it ends up not being him, you're left with thinking, well, who else could it be? And that's when you kind of know it's got to be, it's got to be Max or Star, right? Those are the only two left that that it would make any kind of sense. So I really did think it was going to end up being Star, though. I think that was my initial reaction to the whole thing. I thought she was playing a good role bit, and then all of a sudden would reveal herself at the end. It would have been a good twist. Let's talk about the Frog Brothers here. Um, yes. Oh, <laughs> what- man. What weird, weird characters. Now, uh, obviously, one is played by our good man, Corey Feldman, and the other one played by uh, actor Jameson Newlander. I don't know that I've seen Jameson in anything else. Obviously, the two Corys come out of this. They're, they kind of catch fire in those 80s films, but <laughs> just talk about those two here. Obviously, uh, Corey's the leader of the two because he's the one who does all the talking and Jameson doesn't really do a whole lot of talking, but almost comes off as the brains behind everything. Is that kind of the vibe you get? Yeah. So I love So I, I want to take us back to that first scene where we're introduced to the frog brothers and that one moment where, where Edgar pokes his head out from behind the, the stacks of comic books and he's wearing like that classic (laughs) 80s bandana and he's got that whole like chip on his shoulder 80s kids attitude that's the only way I could think to describe it was that attitude is very 80s and the way that all of these kids interact with each other is very much like 80s new kids like I remember doing that when I was a new kid in the 80s at different schools or vice versa and it just like I love that vibe but I just I love how confident the Frog Brothers are, too. And uh, just that whole, like, yeah, we know what we're talking about, new kid. <laughs> there is, yeah. And they have some really funny one-liners. They're definitely, you know, the comic reliefs. Uh, they have a lot of those moments throughout the film. So it's just, they're just a really fun, like, cast of, I guess, group of three, really, because... Once Sam enters the group, then it kind of solidifies that whole that whole yeah. little comedic relief. And I really like uh, I really like the fact that they're trying to like grill him, mm-hmm. uh, and he's just like schooling him on comics. Yeah. <laughs> that was hilarious. Uh, well, well played there. Makes good friends with them. I I liked the characters. I thought it was kind of funny that you're going to have these two early teen kids that are the saviors of the town looking to help hunt the vampires down. Like the only ones who will actually hunt them are these two kids. <laughs> I just thought that was really interesting. I like the characters. I thought they, they do a good job in here. And yeah, you, you got a killer uh, Corey uh, voice there. You knock them down pretty good there. <laughs> oh, thanks. Yeah. Lots of practice. I like too. they do show the frog brothers parents a few times. Like I, I assume the owners of the comic book stand and mm. they're just like, I assume drugged out of their minds, hippies, <laughs> like they've got the sunglasses on, passed out in the corner. And so basically yeah, yeah. these two 14-year-old boys are basically running, running the, the show. Yep. Yeah, that was pretty funny. <laughs> okay, the other thing that stood out to me in this film is the outfits. Oh my God. The first thing we notice is Max has got the shoulder pads on, right? Mm-hmm. On the on the, on the the suit. Corey uh, Haim has got shoulder pads on. <laughs> Yep. <laughs> and his outfits are insane 80s. I mean, that is like 
Well, and it's very southwestern 80s, too, because they're from Arizona. So you see a lot of the southwestern print in all of his clothes and like the turquoise his mom is wearing when, you know, Mm -hmm. she first shows up. It's very they did a good job with the costuming. I think when he first shows up to the comic book store, Corey Feldman has this really funny comment that's like, if you're looking for the frozen yogurt, stand it closed. Yeah, <laughs> right. Like, close two years ago. It's true because he does look totally out of place and yep. very like preppy, nerdy for that area. He does. I think they did a, a real fun. It was real fun looking at some of the outfits that these people were wearing throughout this whole thing. Michael comes off as trying to be the cool guy in town. Interesting that he's able to catch on so quick uh, with, you know, I guess the in crowd, if you want to call them that, the cool kids, just by following Star. And I'm guessing it's because they looked at him as an easy target. And getting a leather jacket. I, I do remember thinking, just even watching it recently, you know, he wanted he got the leather jacket because he saw star with the motorcycle guys and he has like kind of a motorcycle <laughs> he was like oh clearly i need a, a leather jacket and a pierced ear and then we find out later that was actually all just a part of max's broad plan and so that's why david kind of took him under his wings but i remember thinking oh it's that easy is it to be the new kid and just yeah right automatically be cool no just problem a leather jacket that's all it takes a leather jacket and a a bike. Mm. Uh, I, I do like the fact that David's like, come with us here. And he's like, I can't beat your bike. Yeah, <laughs> so he knows my bike like is crap. <laughs> yeah. but, no, no, no. Just come with us. Yeah, no, it was, uh, it, it was uh, a fun part of that too. Let's talk about grandpa. He's a taxidermy, <laughs> a taxidermist, I guess. Very funny character. I loved when he's in the the old car with Sam and he's like, let's go to town, fires it up <laughs> and then turns it off. All right. That was fun, huh? I thought we were going to town. This is as close to town as I like to get. <laughs> yeah. Super funny. He's an old guy. He gets a call from one of the widows in town. He gets all excited. He goes out on a date with the widow. Oh, just what a great little character to throw in there for some comic relief here and there. And I really enjoyed grandpa. I did too. I love all that. I love that he brings the widow a taxidermied animal as a present. Like that's, that's her dog, like, wasn't it? Yeah, I think it might have been. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then when he's saying the rules of the house, and he's just like, "This is my like spot in the refrigerator," in the and he's got that cardboard over the over that spot. He's like, "This is where I keep my root beer and my double stuffed Oreos." Yes. <laughs> Don't yep. touch it. No, I I like that too. Just a great character, though. I love that he keeps bringing in stuffed or taxidermied animals to Sam's room too, yep. and scaring the crap out of him <laughs> every time he wakes up. <laughs> That's good stuff. Yeah. Lucy seems aloof kind of character. Obviously, just got through a divorce. She basically didn't want to fight, as we learned out, and just moved out. Let the husband have everything and was starting over uh, living with dad again instantly gets in with max and uh yeah a real fun storyline there with you know sam calling her while she's on the date and all of a sudden just starts screaming bloody murder she gets freaked out she runs home leaves max alone yeah and then of course sam puts things together with Max when they go to his house to to apologize and the dog attacks Lucy. 
And so he puts that together with uh, the Frog Brothers that maybe Sam is the head vampire. And when they invite him over, <laughs> I love that whole scene. Would you like some Parmesan cheese? Oh, yeah. Oh, so and sprinkling funny. the garlic on top. Oh, just really, really good scene. Um, and, of course, they try everything. They try holy water. They try garlic. They tried... Uh, just all sorts of stuff and everything. The mirror, and the mirror was him. the best. The <laughs> that was so funny. What a great scene! And so, yeah, so that obviously cast some doubt on whether or not Max is the head, uh, head vampire at that point, and uh, we're led to believe that he is not. And I thought that was a great scene. And then the whole reaction of them all, like, "Oh, I could have swore this was the guy." Now uh, back to the drawing board. But what do you, uh, you know? I'm, I know I'm jumping around here, but what do you think of Michael deciding? that he wants to take out David and clan after Sam kind of tells him he's a half vampire and still can be saved. Well, Michael is already so averse to, I guess, being a vampire. I mean, he clearly didn't know that he was drinking blood when he was, you know, drinking the wine bottle. Yeah. So I think, I think it was, it was a the natural next step, but also because he was essentially being terrorized by them, and he's you know in love with Star, and I assume in love with Star. He's at least in lust with Star, mm-hmm. and really, I think I don't know if he ever saw it as having a choice. I think he just was like, "All right, this is what we got to do." I yeah. mean, I think it was a lot of like fight or flight response, honestly. He was just trying to protect himself and his family. And I think too, once he found out that star and uh, laddie, the Mm -hmm. the young one were both half vampires too. Now he thought the only chance he really had with her was to have all all of them turn back to humans again. Right. I mean, no more vampire. Let's talk about that scene though, where they, they coerce him into drinking the blood. An interesting scene they start with getting Chinese food. They give him some rice and he's eating the rice and they tell him it's maggots. And of course he looks down and there's maggots all over. He spits it out and it turns out to be rice. Then they offer him some noodles and he says, no, those are worms because he can see worms. And so David eats them and they're noodles. And then they offer him the wine and the, and of course star tries to warn him not to drink it, that it's blood. And of course he's thinking they're playing tricks on him again. And so he's drinking this blood thinking it's wine the whole time. It's interesting trope that they can, uh, the vampires can kind of project onto people. I don't know that I've heard that trope per se before. Is that something? I, I mean, I don't know. Vampire lore. I've never really heard that they can project objects to look like something else yeah i'm i'm not super familiar with that either i my original thought when i saw the movie was they smoked beforehand as their appetizer they had a joint and so i was like "Eh, maybe it was laced with some kind of like psychotropic and they were playing off that and that's how they got him to to see these things that he thought he was seeing you know, I don't know how magic they were, but that was when I first saw the movie, my original thought. I still think that that might have something to do with it, but sure. I am familiar with, with vampire abilities. And, you know, it's a vampire movie, so they could, I guess, give their vampires whatever abilities yeah, they sure. want. The wine looked like wine. I think that was my, I think that was my 
I know it was supposed to be blood. And I think we as an audience are supposed to believe that it's blood, but whoever created the blood did not have a good recipe for it. It was very, (laughs) maybe it was cut with water. I don't know, but it was very thin. I agree. I think it would have been better had he thought it was wine and we see it like gooping down his, his lips as he's drinking it as a blood. It didn't do that at all. So it almost felt like he was drinking it straight. And it, it, to me, if he's going to drink blood, we should see his lips covered in blood mm-hmm. and things like that. I think it would have been a better use of that scene to kind of make us think that he's, he is actually drinking blood when he doesn't see that. So yeah, I agree with you. To me, he was just drinking wine and then, oh, nope, that was actually blood. And I thought that was a little weak too, but that setting was really cool though. I really like how they set it in this essentially dilapidated hotel and they gave the space a backstory too. So it Mm -hmm. wasn't just, we didn't have to assume what it was. They gave us this backstory of, Oh yeah, this used to be the top resort in Santa Clara. And then, you know, hurricanes and floods and nobody ever came. And so now this is where we live, basically. So, but I thought it looked really cool too. Yeah, well, they decorated, obviously. They got the doors poster on the wall and and all that kind of stuff. So yeah, I liked it too. I thought it was interesting too when the Frog Brothers and Sam go to the place, Michael takes them there to confront the vampires and they're all sleeping upside down. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I thought that was rather interesting, like bats, right? Yeah. And they kind of alluded to the fact that they come at people like bats flying from down upon them when they attack throughout this film. They do that a couple of times. They show people getting attacked um, at least two or three times in this movie. And it's always the same thing, something coming from the sky. And so when they bring Michael to feed for the first time, that's when we kind of get the glimpse that they are almost like flying like bats. So they're sleeping like bats too, upside down. I thought that was an interesting little piece there. And of course they stab one of the vampires with the stake. The vampire's name was Marco. I do not know that. Uh, thank you, Wikipedia. <laughs> uh, they get him, and then that uh, obviously awakens everyone else, and they get chased out before the big confrontation at the house later that night. But uh, I thought the whole, all the scenes at that place were actually really well done. And yeah, I agree with you. It was a good setting and a good, uh, good use of of the space to give them a a homey feel, right? A, yeah. a clubhouse yet homey feel. Yeah, and and I do want because you just mentioned kind of the the them flying in and you kind of see what they see when they're flying. I really, the camera angles that are used pretty much throughout this whole film, I really, really appreciated. And I had mentioned earlier that there was a moment when I first saw the film where I was like, well, are they vampires or are they just assholes? You know, like mm-hmm. I don't, I don't really know. And then there's a small scene where you see that angle and then it ends up just being a kite And so that played into my thought of, oh, maybe they're not really vampires after all. But they use the film angles throughout the film to kind of play on that. And I really, I really like that. I found that uh, interesting throughout the whole film. Yeah, I would agree. I, I really like their choice of how they did a lot of this, uh, the, the filming of this movie. They, I think they did a good job. How about that, uh, by the way, how about that band? 
Oh my gosh, yes. Oh, I'm so guy, glad that you brought that up. jacked up guy singing on the, out the there. The oiled gosh, up saxophone player kicked <laughs> us for a second. Oh, wow. Yeah, that was uh, that was something I'm like, I don't know. I've been to some concerts before in my life, but uh, flames flying everywhere. And this guy just oiled up on stage, just jacked and singing and playing. I'm thinking... Man, he was wow. into it too. Like he, <laughs> he really knew how to play that sax. Yeah, that he did. That was a that was a good scene. Also, that was the first scene where Michael saw Star. Star, yep. And mm-hmm. uh, I, how I, I'm just trying to play this giant concert out in my head, and how these two just make this connection in a giant mass of people and she sees him staring at her. I don't know if I would, if I would see that. Maybe she, maybe it's her super half vampire senses and she can just, you know, vampires can be, uh, make themselves attractive to anyone, right? That's a, that's a common trope in vampires. So maybe we know that Max set this whole thing up, right? So maybe Max let her know this is your target and make sure he sees you. And then she used her vampire uh, allure to kind of bring him in. Who knows? Oh, interesting. See, see many years of Buffy the Vampire Slayer sometimes pays off. new, yeah. (laughs) But uh, that's the only thing I can think of because I agree. If they're in a huge crowd like they were and how they're going to see each other like that. And, of course, she leads him on a wild goose chase the whole time because he's following her everywhere she goes. So he's he's totally enthralled with her. And I can't think of anything else but figuring out where she's going and and talking to her. Um, So I have to say that plays some role. Yeah. No, I I would agree. There is a really funny line uh, that Sam says as Michael, like, runs off to chase her. And he's like, you're chasing that girl, aren't you? And then he goes, (laughs) I'm at the mercy of your sex glands, bud. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) I'll uh, go somewhere else. <laughs> so many funny one-liners between Sam and the Frog Brothers. They're just yep. so great. There's there's a lot of good stuff in here. They do they do a really good job interacting with each other there. And yeah, no, I I think that this was a fun a fun movie to get into. And I just think they did a really good job of kind of setting things up, leading you one way, turning it around to another. And like I said, I. I had an inkling that maybe Max was involved at the beginning. Then they kind of took that away from you with the dinner meal. And then, uh, you know, I'm thinking maybe it's got to be this star and all that. So I think they did a really good job of, of making you think like, who, who is it going to be? And so I, I like that about it. It wasn't obvious, which I think is great. Yeah. Yeah. That was, it, it made the, it keeps you guessing. Yeah. I have an, I have a vampire question for you since you seem to be a little more in the know than I am. So there's that scene where Michael gets out of bed and he goes to the refrigerator and grabs the quart of milk and starts Mm -hmm. taking a drink from it and basically looks like he's having a heart attack. So can vampires on drink anything? Besides blood, like, is it specifically, is milk causing an issue or is he just assimilating into his new vampiric body? That's a great question because in in vampire lore that I've seen, they can eat and drink like normal people. It just doesn't really do anything for them. Like, they don't, like, get nourishment or anything like that as a normal person would. But in order to hide the fact that they're vampires, they're able to do that. So I'm not sure why the milk 
uh, repulsed him so much. Uh, maybe it was just rotten milk. Who knows? <laughs> but um, that's a good point. Maybe it was. <laughs> I, I don't know. But uh, no, that's not something that I've heard before. That milk is not something that vampires are averse to. So. Also, speaking of the milk, here is a little tidbit. I don't know if you noticed this. They do a good job putting little nuggets throughout the movie. But on the milk container, the missing kid on the milk container is Laddie, the vampire kid. Yep, I saw that too. I think they did a great job setting up the fact that all these missing people come from Santa Clara throughout the movie. That was pretty cool. A pretty cool nugget that they put in there. And I did notice that as well. And I'm like, oh, look at that. And so I was looking to see if there was any anyone else that they, they could play off of there too, but nothing there. Yeah, no. In all, you know, I think this is, was kind of well done. It was fun. It was interesting. I like the fact that, um, you know, the Frog Brothers were there for comic relief um, and really to help Sam become the hero I, as you say even though michael ends up being well grandpa ends up being the hero in the end yeah. i mean <laughs> the whole family becomes the hero at some point except for the mom who's just kind of lackadaisical like what is going on here <laughs> type of thing as you put yeah. it i think that's a perfect description yeah and what what are your thoughts on her like basically giving herself up at the end there ready to just you know save my son i'm just gonna become a vampire Yeah, I think at the very, I mean, from the very beginning of the movie, we see just how non-confrontational this Mm -hmm. woman is. Like, I think Grandpa even said at the beginning, you're the only woman I know who didn't benefit or didn't come out better from having a divorce. (laughs) And she was just like, oh, it wasn't worth the fight. You know, she's she's very, you know, non-confrontational, wants to be... You know, everyone's, I don't know if I'd say friend, but she's just non-confrontational. So also she loves her kids. And I feel like at that point, she just didn't feel like she had a choice. So she just did what she thought she had to do. Yep. I agree with that. And then of course, grandpa crashes, crashes through his own house and just magically knows exactly where Max is going to be and impales him perfectly without touching anyone else. I must say, yeah, mm-hmm. impressive grandpa, great driving. You get the impression that maybe he's done this before. Yeah, right. <laughs> it does seem that way. And he was way. out there. And I love that the fact sharpening that, that stake at one point. Oh, and he used when he, he used <laughs> when he put his fence in. He used yep. stakes as mm-hmm. the fence post. So it's a, he he was prepared, and so he knew what was going on, and and we find that out at the end. So, all right. Um, anything else you want to hit on on the movie? I do want to just tap on the prepping for is after they go in and kill their first vampire in the vampire hotel cave when they're all sleeping upside down. They get chased out of the cave oh, yes. and then they have two hours to make their plan before the vampires come. And we have a classic 80s montage, not only to set everything up, but as like the vampires start attacking montage stops but the music like kind of keeps going and when it doesn't keep going they started up again by murdering a vampire death by stereo <laughs> i think is what they call it nice. and it's just i mean i could just eat up a good 80s montage honestly but it's just it's so it's so classic for for this whole film it just very on brand fits right in 
Yeah, that was awesome. You, and how do you feel about how do you feel about a montage, Brian? I like a good montage. I think it's cool. <laughs> I think it's classic part of the. You know, there was such a good thing of those films. I mean, right? You look at films like The Karate Kid, and you get the montages in there. And I mean, it was just one of those things in the '80s that they did so well. But my favorite part of about that whole whole section is when they go into the church in the middle of a baptism. And the whole church stops and looks at them and they're in there filling their cantinas with, uh, or their canteens with, uh, with holy water. And they're all just staring at them like, what are you doing? And then they just wave and leave. Wave and leave. And then they're all like, "Uh, okay. (laughs) That was my favorite part of that whole, that whole section was that scene. It just, it made me laugh so hard. So yeah, I really enjoyed that. That was, that was a good one. Yeah, and they did a good job with the music too. They did have that really creepy song that played kind of throughout the film of the children's choir singing. Um, that I think added a little bit of texture. Um, but but they did a a decent job with the music throughout the film too. Yeah, I agree. I think they did a great job, and they hit on a bunch of classic '80s acts. Right, you got mm-hmm. In Excess is on there, Lou Graham. Roger Daltrey from the who echo and the bunny men is on there. So they did a good job with the soundtrack and I enjoyed that. Music is always a big thing, especially in the eighties films. That just brings me back to childhood listening to some of the songs that are in these movies. So that was fun too. All right. Well, I think we're at the point of the podcast where we give our popcorn ratings for the movie. So Lindsay, what is your popcorn rating for the lost boys? I am not even going to hesitate giving this an extra large popcorn. Maybe it's nostalgia, but I love this movie so much. It's the best movie the Quarries were ever in together. It's so 80s. It's so perfect for this time of year. So it gets an extra large for me. Awesome. Well, this was my first time seeing this film and I really, really enjoyed it. And I'm glad that I bought it on Blu-ray for just for this review. Now we were looking all over to find this. So I didn't have to buy it on Blu-ray and Jay even offered to buy it for me, a a rental of it for me. And I just so happened to be at Barnes and Noble and saw that they actually had it in stock. And the guy brings me to a 9.99 DVD and I'm looking on their side. I'm like, well, I'm pretty sure you have it on Blu-ray too. So I go and look, $4.99 Four ninety nine for the Blu-ray, <laughs> best four ninety nine I've spent. So that's I'm cheaper happy. than renting. There yeah. you go. So I I'm giving it a large popcorn. I'm not going to go extra large yet because I've only seen it once, but uh, I'm giving it a large. It's definitely worth your time. I really enjoyed it, and I will definitely be watching it again. All right. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Filmstrip Podcast. You can find more episodes on our website, filmstrippodcast.com, as well as feeds to everywhere you can subscribe and download the show. Google, Spotify, Apple, Stitcher, you name it. You can follow the show on social media at Filmstrip Pod on Twitter and Instagram and Filmstrip Podcast on Facebook. We appreciate your support. And until next time, for Lindsay, I'm Brian. Thank you for listening to Filmstrip. Thank you for listening to Filmstrip. You can find more episodes on our website, filmstrippodcast.com. The Filmstrip theme music is produced and performed by Frozen Lake 121. All content used or discussed in these podcast episodes is the property of the respective owners and used under the Fair Use Act, Section 504C2, Title 17.